Hi, this is Christopher Perrin with The Christopher Perrin Show with another podcast on the TrueNorth.fm podcast network. Thanks for watching or viewing. In a previous podcast, I talked about the rise of uh, interest in politics and Christian nationalism in, in, in particular. And I like to use that as a, a kind of a jumping off point to talk to you today about the use of metaphor to describe education and classical education specifically. If we're not called to something like a Christian nationalism, then what are we called to? Most of us are not particularly skilled when it comes to our to theories of the polis, of living well in good society. Most of us get our politics from social media and the news. We haven't, most of us, read deeply in political philosophy. Most of us don't know the history of the Christian church and how it has responded to political circumstances and, and argued for particular ways of being in the world, living with others. I've argued that in this particular moment, uh, Augustine, in particular, his book, The City of God, would be a foundational kind of touchstone text to return to. Because in The City of God, he argues persuasively that there are two cities that are in existence, that exist together and are regularly engaging one another, sometimes in conflict and sometimes in some relative peace, always relative, because true and complete peace won't come until he returns. There's the city of man and the city of God. And I encourage you to look at some of my other writings or podcasts of, um, to explore my thoughts about Augustine. But I do think this is an Augustinian moment and that Augustine would be a great person to return to. But in the context of Christian nationalism, let me make these comments. If we're not called to a Christian nationalism, then what are we called to? This is a complicated question, or at least it has a complicated answer. We might try to summarize a response, but we ought not to simplify. To do so would be like trying to simplify the Trinity, in my opinion. Um, how to live in this particular moment is complicated. Um, we know that we're called to bring Christ everywhere, to bring Christ to the earth and all of our earthly lives. We're called to bring light to those who have lived in darkness. Uh, we're called to disciple the nations. Educating our young or our children is not the unfolding of some master plan step by step that will work well if we just decode the hidden instructions contained in the Gospels and the letters of Paul, although we should consult the Gospels and the letters of Paul quite carefully. But it's laying down one's life, the life of faith, hope, and love. If I were to write my own list of of recommendations of things that we ought to do in this moment, I would say it should include prayer, fasting, repentance, the nurturing education of our children, the love of our neighbors and our enemies, and the reading of political philosophy and church history. It would include faithful service and participation in all segments of society, infused with the love of God and neighbor while bearing whatever cross laid upon us for witnessing to Christ and his gospel without compromise. You could call this a fight, but it would be a fight we wage while bearing a cross and other weapons of love. You could call this, in my opinion, a return to Augustine, 
such an Augustinian two cities renewal would speak pointed truth to power. Just read Augustine. He does that. And take every thought captive. Again, read Augustine. He does that too. But it would speak the truth in love. Refusing to compromise the teachings of Christ, but always respecting the humanity of all our neighbors and enemies whom we continually invite to join us. Those of us who have led classical Christian schools know that our work is primarily local. We have to forge relationships with many different churches and with a variety of local state, county, and local businesses and agencies. Belligerence and pugnaciousness does not build bridges. Furthermore, it does not usually attract converts. Most of us have learned how important it is to create networks of relationships with various institutions and the great value of collaborating with other Christians who are building institutions of all kinds. It is precisely this kind of cultivated web of overlapping institutions and relationships that serves to strengthen our schools and enables us to serve our local communities while also shining the light of the gospel in dozens of different ways. Reality is complex. Living in society is complex. Headmasters with any experience know this. Augustine understood this in 410 AD, and in the City of God, he describes this reality without oversimplifying. While the parable of the wheat and the tares indicates the complexity of Christians and non-Christians living and working in the same field, Augustine also believes in the parable of the leaven working through the dough. The pilgriming church may never make this earth its final home, but it will build and extend a city that grows and welcomes many into it. Augustine stops short of suggesting a post-millennial paradise, but he does believe that the church will grow and bless the nations. So in light of this, what metaphors seem helpful to describe our task of renewing classical education? Now, I'm in sympathy with some who say it's a battle and that we're engaged in a kind of cultural war. But if you, if you go on the campus of a, of a good classical Christian school, what you're not going to see there is preparation for war, unless you really stretch the metaphor. <laughs> uh, you could say, okay, of course, uh, you know, chanting the Psalms, uh, memorizing the Psalms, and uh, learning Latin declensions is preparation for war. You, you can, yes, you could, you could say suckling your baby is preparation for war, but I think you're stretching the metaphor. Those of us who have been leading schools and building schools know and have learned about the complex intermingled reality that we confront. And many of us have therefore appreciated the insights of Augustine. By this I mean the intermingled reality that is living with people who are in the church and people who are outside of the church, in our neighborhoods, in, in businesses, in various institutions, in society. Our calling and our role has been education, the nurture and education of our children. Even that word education and educatio, it means, it means to raise up. Uh, if there's a metaphor in the word educatio, it's to lead out or to unfold. It's not martial training, it's nurturing, it's raising a child. A Christian education rooted in the scripture, the liberal arts and the natural sciences and the great books of our tradition is sorely needed and it's beginning to bless many. 
the governing metaphor for this kind of education has not typically been warfare, though the Christian student must learn to fight against powers and principalities and to live as soldiers under command and to take every thought captive. The traditional governing metaphor for the education of children is nurture, husbandry, gardening, cultivation. Education in the classical Christian tradition is the planting of a tree, not training for war. In my opinion, having visited over 50 classical and Christian schools over the last 25 years, it's this cultivating love for children that animates the renewal of classical Christian education, not cultural warfare. Maybe board members and administrators think in terms of cultural warfare, but typically it's not happening in your third grade classroom and with your third grade teacher. This does not mean that we're naive about the culture wars or that we cannot judiciously make use of battle metaphors. We know that we are participating in a great cultural conflict and that we should pre prepare our students for the reality, realities of the polarized politics of our time. But our metaphors and our language does matter. Some wish to call the renewal of classical Christian education a movement. And I don't want to dispute with this too much, but I prefer renewal. Though I do want the church and many Christians to get up and move. Classical Christian education is not best understood as a call to arms. It's a call to patiently plant, water, and prune. A soldier can be trained, at least by the Marines, in three months. A disciple must be trained and mentored over decades and grow slowly like a tree. I have some very good friends in the renewal of classical education who gravitate to warfare metaphors. These are thoughtful people doing good work and with whom I agree almost all the time. I use battle metaphors myself regularly, as we all do, describing things as mundane as battling weight loss to fighting the encroachment of weeds in my garden. There is a place for using battle metaphors when teaching and learning too. Every student who learns Latin will find himself in a personal battle to focus, parse, memorize, synthesize, and translate. The cultivation of virtue that is central to a classical education involves personal discipline that can be described as a battle to which every student is called. And all Christians are called to fight the good fight, to run the race. Yes, we can use military metaphors because scripture does. My friend David Goodwin employs a martial metaphor in the book he co-wrote with Peter Hegseth, A Battle for the American Mind, uprooting a century of miseducation. He's following a well-worn path of battle books. You know, the battle for this and the battle for that. I don't mind the title, it's a legitimate metaphor. However, it ought not to become the governing metaphor for the renewal of classical education. There's a difference between saying and thinking we're engaged in the renewal of classical education and it's an uphill battle and we're engaged in a battle for the American mind which requires the renewal of classical education. David and the Association of Classical Schools publishes a fine magazine called The Classical Difference. And I know David, he's not going to rename that magazine The Classical Conquest. David himself is genial, kind, very good-natured person. He knows that when he speaks 
of the battle for the American mind that he's using a figure of speech. Well, his co-author, Peter Hegseth, is an Army combat veteran, so I understand his desire to make military metaphors the means by which he thinks about education. I hope he doesn't think of raising his family as warfare, though he might in some cases, and though it can be a real battle getting those kids up for school. We know that kind of battling, don't we? One of the more depressing aspects of our current times is that everyone speaks in terms of fighting, winning, and losing. It's not enough that I succeed. You must fail. People are derided as losers. It's not enough to win a debate either. One must destroy or own one's opponent. Those laboring in education are no exception. Those on the left and the right so easily engage in polarizing put-downs, trash-talking their opponents to journalists who manage the circus in their suits and bright dresses. Major news channels source their reports by citing Twitter feeds now, which they display as a string of tweets like a kite tail, which after all will fly away the next moment. But each moment is news, and each moment is fleeting, but each moment is also vitriol. Have we not all been slowly poisoned by this vitriol after 10 years of it. The phrase civil discourse now sounds like a Latin phrase from the translation of a Cicero speech. It sounds archaic, old-fashioned, irrelevant. Have we in classical education escaped this net of negativity or are we happy to be in it? After all, now we can really say what we think. Maybe we can even shout it. Are there no toxins in our blood, talk, and tongue? Or are we, like everyone else, drugged and determined to say our peace and put the fool in his place and destroy him? This is my concern with the current use of muscular and martial metaphor. I don't think we understand very well what's happened to us. I think it feels a bit too good for us to take off our shirt and take a swing at our opponent. I think this also has something to do with our worship. There were pastors of the past who preached with pistols on their hips and called men to war. Pastors in my church, the Orthodox Church, may not own a gun and may not hunt or kill, though they can fish, because after all, man's got to eat. <laughs> when Constantinople fell to the Turks in 1453, services in the cathedral continued right up to the moment that the priests and other servers were killed at the altar. We are all susceptible to the spirit, the spirit of our age. As Carl Truman says in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, we are all expressive individualists now. We all want to assert our will over against anything that would oppress us. And those of us who would call ourselves conservative Christians can become our own kind of Marxist, wanting to destroy the oppressor. I also think that in the political arena, regardless of one's view about, say, Christian nationalism, 
whatever that may be, or however one may understand it, that we must work, labor, and prudently fight against a growing number of harmful false ideologies and practices that injure all humans. For example, practices like abortion, transgenderism, and all manner of sexual perversions. Broadly speaking, there are many political problems and battles that touch upon education. Still, the scripture and the tradition of educating our children employs other rich language and metaphors besides warfare to describe the calling of education and our lives as followers of Christ. We are to lay down our lives, love our enemies, turn the other cheek, carry our crosses. Parents are called to raise up their children in the nurture and discipline of the Lord. And if Christ is our example as the greatest teacher, does he anywhere suggest that raising our children should be understood as warfare? Christ does turn over tables in the temple and he castigates the self-righteous Pharisees, but he is the one who calls out for all who are weary to come to him who is gentle and humble in heart that we might take up his easy yoke and light burden. And of course he says, let the little children come to me. The great majority of classical schools I know privilege metaphors of growing, thriving, loving, flourishing, thinking, and cultivation. And I believe this is as it should be. Here's just a brief survey of leading metaphors and descriptions that come from some of the more established classical schools right off the front page of their websites. The Ambrose School in Boise, Idaho. Believe, think, serve. The Veritas School in Richmond, Virginia, a place to flourish. The Geneva School of Orlando, Florida, inspiring students to love beauty, think deeply, and pursue Christ's calling. Veritas Academy in Pennsylvania. Veritas Academy exists to raise up loving, thinking, serving children and young adults through classical Christian education. The Cambridge School of San Diego, California, encouraging your child to think well, love rightly, live wisely. Well, it's a brief survey, but it indicates to me that classical Christian schools do not lead and recruit with metaphors of war. So I conclude, metaphors of war have their place because they're in Scripture. Paul says, in Ephesians 6, that we war not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. It's interesting that often the warfare metaphors in Scripture that are applied are applied to our own personal struggle against sin and the demonic realm, rather than against our neighbor, rather than against our enemies, whom we must love even when we disagree. So as I've said previously, I do think this is a time to bear crosses and to love our neighbor. It is a time to contend for the faith as well. It just means that we need to use multiple metaphors when it comes to education. In one sense, it is a battle that we're engaged in, and there, are, there is cultural conflict. Augustine's so helpful here because he told us this 1,600 years ago, that there will be, as it were, two cities that grow up like wheat and tares, and they'll be in conflict with one another. 
but that's possible as they're intermingled and interwoven in this life for them to have relative peace, never perfect peace, and of course, times of conflict as well. Times when we must speak the truth, even when it hurts very much, but always speaking the truth in love and always serving out of that call that comes to all of us, the double love of God and neighbor. This is Augustine's view. We're called to love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbor is ourself. We don't have the choice of doing anything but loving everyone, <laughs> every human being, including ourselves, and of course, loving God primarily. These are the two great commandments, the double commandments of God. And it leads us to, the, to guide, it guides us as we seek to uh, engage um, all people in during these these dur during whatever time we find ourselves sojourning on this earth. So, I urge classical school leaders to go ad fontem back to the source and to pick up the city of God as the first, perhaps, and foundational text to guide our thinking and our role in the polis and indeed in the world. Certainly, don't stop with Augustine. But Christian political philosophy cannot be well understood without him. By all means, let us fight the good fight. Let us contend for the faith. Let us take every thought captive. But let us fight against the principalities and powers while praying for the peace of the city. Let us take every thought captive, but not our neighbor, whom we will love even if an enemy. Most importantly, let us tend to our children as trees, and offer the education of the church to all peoples, all nations, all tribes, all tongues. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Christopher Parent Show. And let me remind you that there are other articles you might want to read on my Substack newsletter at christopherperrin.substack.com. And you can also view some other videos that I've recorded on classicalu.com. Thank you very much for viewing or listening.